Hello, welcome to the monthly podcast of the Vestibular Special Interest Group of the Neurology Section of the APTA. This is Wendy Creekles. I'm a physical therapist and I'm on faculty at the University of Colorado here in Denver. And the topic today is vestibular disorders following concussion. I have two speakers joining me today, Anne Muka and Dana Hinderleiter. So I will ask them to um, just introduce themselves briefly and tell us where you work and what kind of population you treat. Anne, if we'll start with you. Sure. Thanks, Wendy, and thanks for having us. Um, so I'm a physical therapist, just as um, we all are. Um, my specialty is in vestibular management of concussion patients, and uh, I work, actually Dean and I both work, for the Centers for Rehab Services and the UPMC Sports Concussion Program at the University of Pittsburgh. So my job is to coordinate all of the vestibular concussion programming um, throughout our, our multiple sites and throughout our program. Great. And Dana? And uh, um I am Dana Hinderleiter. I also um, work for Centers for Rehab Services. Um, I currently work in our outpatient um, McCandless location. Um, I have worked um, at the Ioneer Institute for, um, in the Balance and Vestibular Clinic um, and work with a mix of um, patients who have neurological conditions, including uh, individuals with concussions, um, both adolescents and adults. Great. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Um, Anne, we'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about the recent awareness um, kind of in our culture of concussion mild TBI. Sure. Uh, you know, I think it's it's interesting because obviously, Wendy, concussion is not a new problem. Mm -hmm. This is not something that has just come about in the past five years or so. Um, clearly, though, our, our our level of awareness has has absolutely um, increased substantially, and, and I think that there are a few reasons for that. I think one reason is, is actually because of, of some of the military actions that have you know happened in recent years, and and I think most people realize that concussions, the signature injury of the wars in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. Iraq, and Afghanistan, and and a huge number of concussed soldiers that have, have returned, um, the, the rates are, are quite high, and, and the, um, uh, the morbidity associated with it has been quite high, and it's got a lot of attention. So I think that's been a, a really um, helpful thing in, in um, raising awareness. And then the other arm of that is, is sports, and, and I think in particularly in trying to um, create a safe environment for young athletes in returning to sports, um, I think that, that that's where a concussion awareness has also uh, been raised. Um, I think that the spotlight is, is shown on the professional athletes quite a bit, so that ESPN footage helps to, you know, kind of hit the message home. But I think really um, our concern for our young athletes is, has taken, you know, is really where our big concern is. So I think that these two things have really served to improve our methods to detect concussions, um, evaluate recovery from concussion and to rehab concussion at this point. It kind of brings us to where we are right now. Mm -hmm. Great. And Dana, have you noticed, say, over the past two, three, four years, an increase in referrals um, for concussive injuries in your clinic? Uh, yes, I have. Um, I would say that as the awareness grows, um, not just among um, 
the medical community um, for um, evaluating and, and diagnosing concussions, but also um, among um, individuals and among parents. Um, I think that with the um, greater awareness um, in general, that there has been a greater uh, realization um, for the need for treatment for these individuals. We have Great. We actually just got statistics um, on our, our program, and, and we're a large concussion program, but we had 15,000 concussion visits oh my in the goodness. past year in our clinic. So I think that, that it, it kind of speaks for itself, right. you know, where the awareness has gone. Right. Do you have, did you collect data, say, five years ago or ten years ago on, on number of visits for concussion? Or oh, yes. How does it compare? Yes, and it's, I think that I don't remember what the initial numbers were, but of course they were much, much lower, and the program kind of trickled um, in, in patients uh, initially, and now it's it's kind of this wildfire effect. Right. Okay. Um, either of you can can field this question if you'd like, but what what are the current best tools um, in your experience for assessing concussion, both initially, let's say the athlete or the soldier on the field? And after the fact, if you don't get them in your clinic till let's say sixty days after the injury. Uh, well, I'll start with the um, the assessing the concussion on field, and um, I'll preface this by saying that um, for both Anne and I, we um, aren't typically seeing um, the patients on the field uh, mm -hmm. being injured. This is typically done a lot of times by um, athletic trainers and coaches and so on. Um, but um, many of the, the tools um, are including uh, subjective reports uh, for the individual's uh, symptoms that they're experiencing um, immediately after um, a, an episode that would um, where they demonstrate some concussive symptoms. Um, however, a lot of times um, they might not be able to or they might not report their symptoms accurately. So it's also important to have objective findings on the sideline. Um, and this generally includes a, a neurological uh, screen that includes um, a cognitive component and, and screening for balance and particular problems or issues, as well as a um, oculomotor for these individuals as well. Um, and then uh, this can lead uh, to pulling that individual off of the field, um, removing them from play a little bit more immediately if they are showing symptoms of a concussion. There are some tools out there um, that are commonly used on the sideline. Um, there's the, the SAC, which is the Standardized Assessment of Concussion. There's the SCAT, the Sport Concussion, Sport Concussion Assessment Tool, or SCAT 2. There's a second version of them. And those are those are good instruments, but they, they have the components that Dana spoke of, which is the, the good neurologic screen looking at, at you know, cognitive and um, balance and ocular issues after concussion. I think that that's the key is whatever tool is used, it needs to have those components to it. Right, right. And then um, later on, let's say 30 days or 60 days or 90 days when they may actually have not um, recovered right. naturally or with rest, 
what kind of assessments do you do? Of course, it's going to be patient-specific, but do you find, especially since you have a concussion program, are there certain tools that you use more in a standardized fashion on almost everyone? Absolutely. Uh, so the, the interesting thing, and I think um, many people realize this, but you can't just image um, to determine that there's been a concussion or that a concussion is still, still exists. There's really still no good imaging or um, you know, studies that, that are, are on an individual telling us about the extent of recovery from concussion. And also those sideline tools that Dana mentioned aren't useful either at that point. So you can't use the SCAC or the SCAT to, to tell you about, um, you, know, a week, you know, a week, a month, um, 60 days later, whether recovery is complete. So you need to look at other um, more detailed assessments, and that would probably include the thing that's most popular that people are aware of is the neurocognitive testing. And there's lots of types of neurocognitive testing out there, um, computerized programs versus paper-pencil tests. There's lots of, of types of tools. We happen to use the IMPACT program in our, um, in our setting because um, IMPACT was developed in our program. But certainly that's not the only tool out there. But it's important to have an assessment of, of cognitive brain functioning. So, so there, there needs to be something on, on that line. And then there needs to be some very specific measures of other brain functions. So how is the vestibular imbalance system um, uh, operating, particularly looking at sensory organization issues, which really seem to be um, prevalent following concussion. There are other balance issues, but sensory organization does seem to be hit quite a bit. And vestibulo-ocular function testing um, is very important because the vestibular system can, can affect both components. Um, one thing that we think is, is often overlooked uh, is oculomotor assessment is key in these patients. There are often plenty of ocular issues and, and uh, can't be ignored. And then, of course, you have to have a very good symptom inventory. You know, you have to look at subjectively what patients are reporting. However, not only relying on that because um, patients don't always, um, I, I shouldn't say, they may not always be truthful about their symptoms um, for reasons, you know, related to wanting to get back to sport mm -hmm. versus maybe not wanting get, to get back to work. Mm -hmm. There could be under-reporting and over-reporting, so you have to have a, a kind of a, a mixture of subjective and objective things. Um, also, looking at cardiovascular functioning, including um, sensitivity to, to orthostasis and vasovagal issues and response to exertional activity has to be part of the package. And um, the other wild card here is, is there also cervical spine or other musculoskeletal issues, which, you know, as you can imagine, if you have an, enough force to create a concussion, you quite um, frequently can have cervical spine involvement. So I think that that's pretty much, you know, a, a good um, post-acute um, screen. Right. And, and can you talk a little bit about what you do for the sensory organization test and vestibular ocular testing? Do you pair with ENT and actually have an ENG of some kind for the ocular testing? Do you use a smart balance master for the SOT? And how do, how do you do those two? Um, well, within our, our program, we are um, somewhat fortunate enough to we have um, computerized uh, dynamic posturography available at one of our clinics. Um, so we will um, 
for some individuals be able to use that information. Um, we do at times um, pair with um, the EN, uh, NENT or an autoneurologist if they appear to have some more peripheral signs of vestibular findings. Um, but also in uh, outpatient clinics, um, we're doing just a really good assessment um, of some of their, their um, general balance and sensory organization, like the CAT-SIB, um, um, an oculomotor screen by a, a physical therapist who has been trained mm -hmm. uh, to do uh, that type of evaluation. Um, so I would say that we're using a mixture of both some of the more computerized um, testing evaluation methods and um, some of the substantiated um, clinical uh, tests for balance. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think that we're trying, uh, just like Dana said, I mean, we have one site where we have computerized dynamic posturography, and it's not a site where we can potentially, we can't expect the number and the volume of patients to mm -hmm. get to that site. So. I think it's really important in concussion management to develop really um, clinically sound evaluative tools that are that are easily um, implemented in all different settings. So we try as much as we can to stay away from all of the high tech um, all of the high tech um, requirements as possible. So. We really do like the, the modified cat tip, but we're mm -hmm. working with some researchers, um, Sue Whitney and, and her group at Pitt are, are putting together an accelerometer version of the cat tip with this modification called the BAM, mm. B-A-M. Um, and it's there, so we're really trying to figure out how can we take looking at this, um, this domain of, of sensory organization and, and make it really measurable and um, valid, but much more cost-effective and easy to do. So we, we tend to, like Dana said, use, use a combination of both. Mm -hmm. And then how I can imagine you have um, strong partnerships within your program. Where does the cardiovascular exertional piece come in? If you th Is that like a, another referral, or do you have physicians that do treadmill testing, or what does that look like? Either of you. We have um, our uh, we have physical therapists who participate in that. Okay. Physical therapists have been um, trained in, in doing some uh, exertional rehab and exertional therapy, and um, so frequently how this will will work is that um, once the um, individual, the patient, is um, doing a resolution of some of their resting symptoms, then we will begin to consider a more um, structured return to an exertional and activities program. And so frequently they will um, um, receive referral from um, their physician or the concussion program um, to have an exertional evaluation by physical therapy. Um, and they will uh, monitor closely for uh, any symptoms that um, are produced by exertional activities. They generally will um, look at um, the cardiovascular function with the treadmill test. Um, they will also kind of uh, take a look at how they're doing with some balance activities um, and the vestibular component if the individual is showing that as well. Um, and then start them at um, a staged 
return to play program where they'll begin with light activity um, and progress to a moderate amount of activity, finally sports specific and, and contact activities. Mm-hmm. And a return to play. So this is frequently carried out by um, physical therapists also. Mm-hmm. Um, have um, some experience rehab with the concussion population. Mm-hmm. And we're very lucky that we're big enough to have yeah. kind of both umbrellas. And we realize many people are out there trying to do both in their clinic. Right. And, and that's, that can be challenging, but it certainly isn't impossible. It's just that um, we we have enough, um, <laughs> we have enough business to really um, just split it up for us. Right. Um, we have enough um, very well-trained um, physical therapists on our staff to be able to do that also. Um, but we realize that in uh, a general outpatient setting, you might have um, one therapist who is doing both the neuro and the exertional aspect of the concussion. Dana, can you speak just a little bit about, since you do, um, I believe both of you treat individuals who are much younger, children or, or adolescent athletes as well as the adult population. Is there any, you know, one, two, or three kind of hallmark signs that differentiate the population, maybe between, you know, children under 11 and between 11 and 18 and adults? Is there anything either in your testing um, that you tend to see, or do you modify your testing? Any any couple of things that are more age-specific? I would say the biggest thing um, that I noticed, particularly with extremely uh, young children, is that they're very, um, it's very difficult for them to uh, describe their symptoms or to understand what you're asking as far as mm. uh, things like dizziness and headaches. So it's a matter of kind of um, speaking with their parents as well and finding out if there have been changes in behavior, um, things like increased irritability that they might be showing, um, if they're showing signs of um, increased fatigue with certain activities, um, if they notice that they don't want to do certain activities that they used to enjoy doing. If, If a child was somebody who enjoyed playing video games and suddenly they don't want to do that, or if they enjoyed reading and suddenly they're not interested in reading, um, that might lead us to believe that there's possibly a visual component mm-hmm. well. Um, so generally, I think with um, populations like that, that's the biggest thing that I notice is that um, their ability to explain what's going on with them is a little bit different from an older population. I don't know how you, how you feel, Dana, but... Um I find that actually kids, I agree, I agree it's it's harder in the younger kids to get accurate um, symptoms and and, and to to have them understand things. And actually, interestingly enough, like a lot of our self-report measures really aren't validated in the young children, you know, the ABC and the BHI. You know, the questions on there aren't exactly, you know, all... um, appropriate or, or, you know, aren't specific to children. But but anyhow, um, I think that I, I find that it's the younger children that I have problems with. I think even from 10 and above seem to to be fairly um, able to report symptoms and are doing a pretty good job. But when you're dealing with kids under 10, especially, you know, 7 and 6 and those ages, that's where I really, um, you know, have to dig a lot deeper. Mm-hmm. I would agree with Anne on that one. Those are generally the populations that I see 
um, being less able to describe what their symptoms are. Right. Do you tend to use tools like ABC and DHI if you feel they can, you know, even though it hasn't been validated, do you use them for a 16-year-old or do you only use them exclusively if they're adults? Um, I would say definitely we use them for, for that population um, because uh, it also gives us an idea of um, what they are experiencing or how they're perceiving their symptoms at that time. Mm -hmm. um, so even though they haven't been validated yet, I think it still gives them very uh, good information about what the individual is, is experiencing. Mm -hmm. It gives us a point where we can ask more questions Right. You know, when we see how they answer. So so I don't think you throw the baby out with the bathwater. No, they mm -hmm. haven't been validated. We need to do work with them, maybe even adapt a few questions on both of them. Right. But there's still value. Right. Are you aware of anybody doing um, just that? Are you aware of any groups or Sue Whitney's group, anyone who are who's looking at, you know, younger subjective scales or scales for the younger population? We've talked about it, but we haven't. I don't think there's anything in the works right now. I know that they're working on a pediatric or a a scale to validate motion sensitivity in young in, in oh, children. Um, she's working with some researchers in, in England about that. Sue Whitney is, um, but I I don't um, I I don't know about any specific um, plans at this point to change the ABC and the DHI. But I would welcome them. So whoever has right. the ability to do that, that would be great. Yeah. Okay. Um, and from your standpoint, since you, you coordinate um, within this, pro this concussion program, tell me a little bit about the flow of care, like where the referral is generated and how it, is it the, the, is there a physician who kind of triages who they need to see? Is it a PT as first point of contact? Just either sure. for an athlete or a non-athlete, what's kind of the flow of care through your system? Well, let's talk about an athlete and, and how it would work in a perfect world. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we, in our system, um, most of our athletes are um, managed by athletic trainers who are also part of our health system, so we kind of have this integrated model with them. So in, in a perfect world, an athlete has, you know, baseline testing, you know, preseason mm -hmm. testing where they've, had you know their neurocognitive and symptom functioning looked at before the season begins or before any injury, and then after a concussion is sustained, that it's actually recognized and that that player is removed from mm -hmm. the, the field immediately, and then evaluated by the trainer or if there's a sideline even um, team physician that somebody that knows about concussion management that they're evaluated immediately, and then at that point that the, the the athlete is given, you know, some basic instructions about minimizing activity and stimulation, but then referred into our clinic, into the concussion clinic. Now, what's different about our program is that our point of entry is actually neuropsychology. Mm -hmm. um, so the neuropsychologists in our system are the ones who are the, the ones that are the, doing, like, the basic screening. Um, we have physicians on our team and on our staff, and they're brought in, um, as soon as we need to make other referrals, think about medicines, when this is um, a, a, a slower to recover injury, 
but our, um, we've done a lot of work with our team and trying to make sure that our neuropsychologists know how to do basic assessments of balance and vestibular functioning mm-hmm. along with ocular functioning. Um, they, of course, know about neurocognitive testing and symptom reporting. So we try to make sure that whoever is the point of entry um, is doing that. However, we're actually working with a model right now because we are so busy, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. where we're, we're experimenting with um, some of our physical therapists, some trained physical therapists, being kind of a, an interim um, beginning point. So we're actually um, rolling that model out a little bit right now and, and experimenting with it as well. We feel that anybody who has a background in concussion management and has been trained, um, we, we think that the, that the screening assessment should be able to be carried out um, by somebody that is a professional and has the training in this. So mm-hmm. we, um, we're trying to make sure that we have access to care because it's important that these people are seen not two months down the line, but are mm-hmm. seen within you know, a week of their injury. They mm-hmm. need to know. So then at that point, once they're assessed, um, you know, we look at the, you know, the, the complete picture of their concussion, um, whether it's done by the neuropsychologist or whomever, and then um, hopefully there's baseline data, um, pre-injury data to look at valid comparisons for, you know, how much of an injury are we looking at here. And then at that point we roll out what are the, the interventions we want to, to implement. Is, do we require therapy at that point? Do we require medicines? Do we require school restrictions or activity restrictions? And then we do serial follow-ups to, to make sure that this person is progressing um, systematically and then um, hopefully then return them to whatever their activity was. Mm-hmm. That's ideal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not always the way it works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. As Anne kind of pointed out, um, Excuse me, in our system, and I, and I think it's very important for the treatment of these patients because it's a very, um, concussions are a complex injury, um, that it's a very coordinated uh, team effort, um, multidisciplinary um, with a, a number of branches um, of the healthcare system that are involved based on what the patient's needs are. Um, in our program, we have neuropsychology involved, we have um, the medical doctors involved, um, physical therapists. Um, also optometrists, ophthalmologists. So um, there are a number of disciplines that are involved to help with the care of these individuals. Otology, neurotology, yeah. So there's, right, it does, I mean, it kind of is amazing that, that um, you know, when people think about concussion management, I mean, I think as neurotherapists, you know, we've all worked or we, we've had experience in, you know, acute, you know, inpatient brain injury, and you wouldn't dream of not having a multidisciplinary team available to you to work with brain injury. Well, it really is no different for concussion. Right. You need a multidisciplinary team. It's mild brain injury, but a brain injury nonetheless. Right, absolutely. That's a great point to to highlight. Um, Can either of you talk about if it's not an athlete in in you know, what you just described I think is great because there's often someone on the sideline, either a parent um, or a coach or an, a, a trainer, who actually sees the concussion and can hopefully then streamline the care and, sure. and get them referred. But what about the individual who maybe had, you know, a, a fender bender or, um, you know, a fall with a mild concussion, and those people tend to go to the emergency room, get checked out, they're told they're fine. If they're dizzy, they get meclizine, and they're kind of 
sent out? Do you mm-hmm. uh, it, it does your clinic kind of handle that population as well? Have you seen that be a little more streamlined in the last couple of years, or could you speak to that a little bit? Um, I think for that population, um, I think it is becoming a little bit more streamlined, uh, particularly in this area. Um, and I think because of the concussion program and the education that they have done um, with the health professionals in this area, uh, we're seeing more um, uh, faster um, admission into the, the system um, from patients who've been admitted, like through the emergency room, for instance. Um, and ultimately, they would go through a similar type of um, flow for their health care as, as well. Um, when we get to things a little bit later on as far as you know, activity, returning them to exertion and so forth, that would be more streamlined and geared towards what that individual's um, kind of pre-morbid level of activity was, the, the things that they want to get back to. Um, but I think that um, that's becoming a little bit better. We do see people who maybe didn't go to the emergency room and weren't aware of their symptoms and waited a while to get to their physicians. Um, but they um, ideally we would like to see them kind of go through a similar process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the two things that, that are different with the non-athletes are, um, one is that we don't have baseline information on non-athletes. Um, so we're relying on, you know, less information about premorbid function sometimes. Um, and then also, kind of like Dana alluded, um, if you're lucky and um, or have gone to the emergency room and you've had a good ER physician who said, you know, we believe you've had a concussion, here's the number for the concussion clinic, call within the next few days and get seen, then access to care is pretty rapid. But Oftentimes, there's a, a lot of layers before they actually get to our clinic. Once they're here, the management is actually very similar, except the mm-hmm. return to play. We're not returning mm-hmm. to play, but the actual management and the care is, is the model is exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, we just, you know, have different goals about what we're returning folks to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, effective this year, physical therapists got pretty excited about Colorado passing a law. Um, that requires every child between the ages of 11 and 18 who sustain a concussion in sport that they um, absolutely need a referral to a healthcare provider and they need clearance from that provider prior to returning to play. We felt it was a step in the right direction. It's not complete, but it's a step in the right direction. Do you have anything similar in your state or... Like, how do you go about getting baseline testing? That's kind of what what we're fighting for next, that if you're an athlete, you need to have baseline testing so that we have something to go off of if you do get a concussion. Um, Do you have any kind of law like that in your state? Um, We we do. Um, It was just – it was signed into law in November of last year and um, was made effective in July of this year. It's called the Safety and Youth Sports Act. Um, the exciting part of it is that the law includes PTs as part of the uh, treatment team for evaluation and treatment of these individuals. Um, and it does um, it, it's, it does include um, baseline testing for um, sports, I believe. Um, it's effective for school-age children that are participating in school-related functions. And to, um, in addition to 
support, uh, it also includes um, extracurricular activities and, and anything that is related to a school function. Um, the some of the points of it are that it has um, includes return to play clearance, and that that is uh, something that's to be done by a licensed physician um, or a neuropsychologist um, that have been trained in concussion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the nice thing about our law, um, which we're very happy about, is that actually physical therapists are mentioned as, as a as a part of the treatment and management team, which um, is exciting. I think that that um, it's not been recognized. Uh, very much that that PTs you know have a role in, in this. So I think that you know there's there's um, there's definitely room for improvement, but I think that it's um, it's definitely a step in the right direction, as you said. I think what Dana we were looking 31 states now have laws, um, and they vary you know about their level of you know how strict they are. Um, in our state, there isn't. Um, I don't think baseline testing is mandated, but um, there are some initiatives, like in our area, with our professional sports teams. I think Pittsburgh Penguins um, have, have partnered with us, and as well as a, a couple of other community organizations. And we provide there's free baseline testing um, for all kids um, mm -hmm. in our area, which has been a great. Last year it was for all hockey players because it was through the the Penguins, right. but but this year now it's it's all kids. Um, are eligible for free baseline testing, which has been just a wonderful partnership. Um, so I think there will be more and more initiatives out there that are co-sponsored and, and start to make this happen. Um, the one thing about baseline testing, though, is it needs to be valid baseline testing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, it, it has to be done in the right way and, and free of distraction and an environment that's taken seriously for it to mean anything. Right. Right. What do you see as the next step um, for physical therapists or the APTA or the neurosection or the vestibular SIG? What should our next step be to either raise awareness or make partnerships or, um, you know, how do we move this um, further? Well, I think that first just making sure that, that in all states it's recognized, you know, what a, a, an integral role we have in this mm -hmm. um, in this injury. I think that it's, it's definitely still um, not widely accepted that there is a place. I think that it's not widely still known that, that there are problems in the balance and vestibular and ocular motor systems that physical therapists can not only evaluate but do something about. Right. I don't think that the awareness of the rehab is, is at all where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. The detection is finally improved, but awareness about what can be done to help manage these right. symptoms and, and to rehab is, is not there. And we there's a ways to go with exertional um, components. We don't know, um, is it, is, you know, the old adage is, you know, you, you rest, rest a concussion, and, and but what happens when rest doesn't work? Um, mm -hmm. How how long can you let these people not be active before you start affecting negative mood, cardiovascular changes, things that will be detrimental in the long run? When do you introduce mobilization in these people? Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have some feelings about that, that, that we wait, you know, that, that many people wait too long, and it's not, not healthy mm -hmm. to be completely inactive for too long. Um, 
cervical issues are, are huge in this population, right. and PPs are are the best group to deal with those conservatively. Right. Uh, so I think that we just need to make sure that that we're we're visible and and we're we're there, and I think that we can be involved in. Um, you know, in the world of base of, of preseason screening for some of these issues, you know, we're we're starting to kind of think about how do we even look at some of this functioning before injury, um, and you know, I think that um, I think we have a ways to go. We've done well, but but we're we've got a lot to do yet. Right, Dana, do you have anything to add to that? Um, no, I agree with um, everything Ann said. I think that as a profession, we have a very um, significant role that we can play um, in this treatment and with the healthcare team. Um, I think we are equally qualified to be able to um, help return these patients back to their, um, not just their level of, of athletic performance, but their level of of life, you know, just getting back into a good quality of life again. And I think that general can be a very valuable member of the healthcare team. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's about all the time we have today, unless either of you have anything you'd like to add. I, I think we've covered a lot, Wendy. You, you did cover a lot. Um, on, on behalf of the Vestibular Special Interest Group of the Neurology Section, I really want to thank both of you for joining me today in doing this podcast.